It's tax time and we're talking money. I would describe myself as someone who has had a career choice privilege. I have Harvard MBA. I have a master's in international studies from John Hopkins. I've worked at the World Bank. I've been an entrepreneur. I've been a C-suite executive. I've had that kind of career. That post-2009 began to slow down. That, that momentum that I was accustomed to slowed down. Slowing down, speeding up, serenity, the wisdom to know the difference, and the smarts to make hard choices. Coming up on The Janice Adams Show, wealth building, entrepreneurship, mistakes business owners make, and faking normal, a gut check of a book by Elizabeth White. Trying to make it real compared to what... First, the news. Today on the Janice Adams Show, money, food, and food for thought. I would describe myself as someone who has had a career choice privilege. I have Harvard MBA. I have a master's in international studies from John Hopkins. I've worked at the World Bank. I've been an entrepreneur. I've been a C-suite executive. I've had that kind of career. That post-2009 began to slow down. That, that momentum that I was accustomed to slowed down. That's Elizabeth White, author of the book Faking Normal. In an upcoming show, she speaks to what happens when things slow down and about the process of accepting one's new life circumstance. Perhaps you know the feeling, or someone you love has experienced the economic downturn up close and very personal. Indeed, as Elizabeth learned all too well, for far too many Americans, this new normal is less an exception and more the rule. I think what has happened is that um, for the first time, um, many people who in the past could not see a sequence of events where they would ever hit rock bottom, now can see it. And I mean beyond just big things like job loss or medical diagnosis. There are now a number of people in the country who if there is a major uh, car repair, if there is uh, the heat pump goes out, or the water heater goes out, they are now standing at the abyss. And Mm -hmm. this is, so when you see a statistic, one that uh, Neil Gabler in the Atlantic piece uh, about a year ago, when he uh, talked about 47% of Americans can't put together um, $400 for an emergency. He's not just talking about people who have modest income. He himself was in the gig economy, feast or famine, and it is, uh, he may even have the asset of a house. I have a house. It is the cash flow that becomes, uh, you know, the, the major constraint. 
In response to all of this upheaval, many are rebuilding their lives by starting new businesses. Elizabeth is doing just that with her book and her work as a public speaker. So for newbies, transitionals, and those growing an existing small business, today's show is all about money and food, savories, and the stew. Our guest, Marcus Giuliano, restaurateur and author of 50 Mistakes Business Owners Make. Money makes the world go around the world, go around the world, go around Time is a very precious commodity that many often waste. When you own and operate your own business, time can either be highly profitable or a significant drain on that rather precious resource. Marcus has been in the service industry his whole life and successfully and profitably runs his own restaurant. He's now in his 14th year. In 50 Mistakes Business Owners Make, he offers a profound opportunity to lay bare the costly mistakes you might make by understanding the ones he has made. Welcome, Marcus. Glad to be here. You're going deep on this, right? Try to go deep. <laughs> we could go deeper because 50 mistakes is only like the tip of the iceberg. Oh, really? <laughs> <laughs> there can be sequel after sequel here. Um, of the 50 mistakes, you have the book broken into sections that have to do with operating the business. And one of them is the section on advertising and promotion. And you have four mistakes that people make there. You don't have a billboard. You don't know how or when to tell a good story. Your guests don't really know who you are. And you blew your entire advertising budget in one place. So let's start there. Absolutely. What is your billboard? So, you know, your billboard is your platform. It's your it's it's your story. It's it's what leads into your story. It's it's just about you getting out there. We have with with you know, 25 years ago, we didn't have many options to advertise or publicize our business or express ourselves. And now we can express ourselves wherever we want on a blog, on a video, on uh, via YouTube, Facebook, Twitter, so you, our billboard is much more than just a billboard these days as a billboard that's on the highway. So it's that sort of like a, well, that was the billboard, but now here's the new face of the billboards of today. And we really have to understand that everything we do has the power to be up online somewhere, whether we're putting it there or somebody else is putting it there. So, you know, figure out what your... Um, Figure out what your passion is, what your story, what your why is, and then all of a sudden start telling everybody like crazy, and that's your that's your billboard. So as the owner of Aroma Time, and that's Aroma, T-H-Y-M-E. Like the herb. Like the <laughs> herb. What is your billboard? So our billboard is many different facets. You know, I'm, I consider myself a person who who promotes, 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 promotes. So every day, the first thing that I do is think of how am I going to promote my business today? I can be the best chef in the world. I can be the best accountant in the world. I can be the best whatever in my world, in your world, in, in the tri-county New York State region. But if nobody knows about me, I'm not going to be able to survive. Mm. So the billboard is to get out there and stand up and tell your story, which the second 
one in there is, is the follow-up is telling your story. We all have a story of why we're doing something. Mm-hmm. And we don't understand, or a lot of people underestimate the power of the story, and they don't tell the story properly. Now, I'm not saying to go out and fabricate a story, but some, there's always something interesting about what we do. Like, what brought me to cook? Something authentic. Something authentic. You know, I remember four or five years old, I'm helping my grandmother roll out pasta. You know, that's the true Italian mm-hmm. family and kitchen, and that inspired me at a young age to appreciate homemade food and that then that led to me to wanting to cook myself and then that led to me wanting to put my accounting book down for a cookbook so see there's a whole story that we can intertwine in there that is all factual based and a lot of restaurateurs and a lot of business owners just don't they don't look back far enough and say well here is my story how did i get here there's a story of why i'm in ellenville it might not be you know a story that hey that might not be my first selling point but i'm in ellenville because I believe in Ellenville, uh-huh. and my kids go to school there, and my wife was born and raised there, and it's my hometown, and I'm trying to make my hometown a better place. In terms of this story, you talked about putting down your accounting book for a cookbook. For a cookbook. So did you begin planning to be an accountant? I started taking business courses, and I wasn't going to be an accountant, but I'm, you know, as I'm sitting there, at night, like, do I go do my accounting 101 homework or do I flip open a cookbook? Uh-huh. You know, so there was a conflict of interest going on there. But it was really good that I did take business courses and I do have yeah. a business background because I needed that as a chef yeah, to absolutely. understand the mechanics of the finances of, to, of the business. To transition from chef to restaurateur. Exactly. Exactly. See, anybody can be the best chef, the best baker. And we all have a story of, oh, Sally makes the best muffins and Sally should be making have a own cupcake shop Mm -hmm. but Sally doesn't know anything about running a cupcake shop she can just make the cupcakes so what was the you say 50 mistakes owners make what was the mistake that triggered your understanding that you would have to do (laughs) something about billboarding building a platform and telling your story well we opened in Ellenville and Ellenville when we opened in 2003 People always said, well, how'd you survive, you know, the crash of 07 or 09? Or how'd you survive these these markets? And I said, well, I opened in Ellenville. It was worse when we opened in 2003 than I've experienced anything in the last 14 years. And I learned very quickly. And I was all before that, I was always into self-promoting. I always like to, to toot my own horn, so to speak. If I'm doing something, I got to tell people. And I learned a long time ago in, in previous jobs that for something to get out there, I'd have to make a press release. I'd have to formulate a press release and send it out. I'd have to network with with people that wrote articles on what I was doing. And I remember one time I was at a, a big sustainability conference and I had hired a PR person and she was there at the same conference and I was in Colorado at the time and we were actually here in New York. And she was doing one or two things for me at an exuberant price, by the way. So at the end of the conference, I sat down with her and I said, Sylvia, look what I got. She goes, what do you have, Marcus? And I go, I have the whole list of every single reporter in this room. And she goes, how did you get that? I said, I went and asked for it, and they gave it to me. <laughs> so here's my PR person I'm paying an exuberant amount of money who doesn't know who all the press is in the room, and I have the whole press list. So I reached out to all the press there. I sent messages. I, you know, I sent my press kit. Back then, we used to have a press kit. Yes, <laughs> and you had to... Put stamps on and put in the mail, yes. So I sent out, I think, 80 press kits after I got home from this conference. And so I kind of realized that, hey, no matter who you hire to do things, are they going to do it as good as you? And, and what, what exactly is, you know, 
of course, we have to hire people because we have to rely on people. That's a big part of the book, and we have to be able to delegate. But you also have to know what you're doing as well, and you have to surround yourself, obviously, with a good team. So at that point, I was like, well, you know, I need, I'm learning a lot about PR and marketing, and this was going to be a very, very strong part of my business once I opened in Ellenville that I soon realized. And when you first opened, like we talked about, one of the mistakes was blowing all your, all your marketing budget. When we got through our first summer, and of course, every summer is better than the winter, so we had extra money in the bank at the end of the summer, and we blew all of this extra money on marketing that wasn't working. And we were like, oh my gosh, going into January, we were like, this is our one-year anniversary, and we're flat out broke here. And it's just, this is crazy that, and from that point, it, it forced me to start one of our best promotions ever, and one of our best uh, best practices ever, building a database. And I learned how to communicate with my database via email and do direct response marketing. So I always like to tell a story. Imagine if you baked cookies and you sat and baked 12 dozen cookies, 144 cookies, and you sat on the corner of the street. And it took you eight hours to sell those cookies. Well, the next time when you baked cookies, why don't you call the people who bought your cookies the first time? You could sell out in an hour. And that was sort of the that was sort of an inspiration of of that that story of on on me and to reaching out to the customers who had already been in my door for one two three four five times, and I was able to sell a fantastic promotional offer for our one year anniversary that made us have an incredibly busy January and February. And what was it? It was our called our our anniversary offer, and it started out as a contest where okay I'll e- I sent an email out and say hey we have. This is exactly what the email said. We usually spend $450 on an ad uh, for a month, and we put it in the XYZ magazine. But I said, instead of us spending $450 on an ad, I'm going to give away $450 worth of gift cards in $25 increments. So within literally 30 seconds, the first email comes back in. I'll take a gift card. Within 10 minutes, our inbox was so flooded. Back then, we only had... 400 people, 500 people on our database. Mm-hmm. But our inbox was flooded with responses. And I looked at my wife and I said, I got to be honest with you, I'm not stopping at $450. Everybody who emailed me today, uh-huh. tomorrow, and the next day, whatever, I'm sending every single one of them a gift card. Okay. So let's talk about that. Now, you're saying you blew your $400 budget. Something like a gift card means that essentially the money is in-house. Yes, you have a food cost and for those people who take the gift card, but initially your cost is your email and your gift card, right? Yes. I think this is important because sometimes when people are trying to get going, and, and especially they'll go to a business workshop, they'll go to these things where they are essentially selling them packages that these companies make, and that's good because that's the business they're in. But sometimes you can go get overwhelmed when you get down in the weeds on something as basic as that saying, you know, well, I... I I didn't have the money for the marketing, so the cost of buying a gift card, and then I have to, and in fact, I know from my own business how um, you have to buy those, and there's a setup fee, and this, that, and the other. But here you are doing something very practical that's within your control. It was, you- it was on cardstock, and it got sent out in the mail with a stamp on it, and it was so simple to produce. And it, <laughs> We had been open 12 months exactly, 13 months now, mm-hmm. and it was our best month for our 13 months of being open. 
so, go, so I was spending the four hundred and fifty dollars on an ad anyway. The money was the money was leaving my restaurant anyway. So I switched mind mindset and said, why don't I reward the people who have already been into my restaurant? And in actuality, okay, so I gave them a twenty five dollar gift card. They they in turn what what does it cost me? It cost me thirty percent for labor, thirty percent for food. So I still have a buffer in there. So I'm not giving away a full twenty five. Exactly. But the amazing thing that happened was people appreciated the generosity. And they came in, and of course, they spent far more than $25. They spent $50, $75, $100, $150. So they were spending a well above and beyond. Now, here's the thing. That ad that I was placing looked great, looked fantastic. It was done by a professional graphic artist that 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 the magazine employed. It looked great. Our logo looked great. But I couldn't measure what it was doing. I couldn't measure its return on investment. And now the biggest thing I teach to anybody is if you can't measure it, don't do it. Now, there's certain things with with Facebook and things like that and, and, and responding to reviews and getting on TripAdvisor and Yelp. There's certain things you have to do where you're not going to be able to measure it. But if somebody's walking into your storefront and saying, I have this great offer, this great ad for you to place, this great promotion for you to do, you need to look at them and say, can I track my return on investment? If you can't track it, you don't do it. Now, here's the flip side of that. After you track it, you have to analyze it and, and what works keep doing because if we all went to the casino and we all put a dollar in and we got ten dollars back would you stop pulling the slot machine <laughs> you wouldn't stop <laughs> but if you if you were getting 50 cents back you'd stop after your, te- your first 10 bucks was up so this is like marketing figure out where what works and keep going for it and going for it and going for it so for example i know that birthdays are my number one promotion everybody has a birthday most people go out to eat on their birthdays so if I have your birthday, I'm sending you an offer. For every dollar that I spend on a birthday postcard, I get back thirty four dollars. That's a one that's a thirty four to one ratio. <laughs> I want everybody's birthday that I can come in contact with, right? Exactly. At that at that, at that uh, uh, those kind of numbers. Oh. Anniversaries are huge. So there's all certain things that we know that through monitoring that we know works and keep doing those. You're coming at this as a restaurateur, but what you're talking about translates into into other industries, into other sectors. As you look across the board and you see, you know, one of, one of the points that I was really struck by in, in your, your 50 list, one was not being strong enough to, or confident enough, I think is the word you use, to speak with your competitors. But you also speak about cross-promoting across um, sectors and, and with other people. That's How'd you come su- to that? That's super important. So, of course, you can't you, – competition is a good thing. You know, of course, some people say, well, no, competition isn't a good thing. Competition gets you on your feet. It makes you be creative. It, it puts pressure on you. Some people that have no competition, they never feel the pressure. So for me, the pressure is – I need to be the best restaurant in my town, in my village, in the county. And how can I do that? I have to do another promotion. I have to do something um, unique. I have, to do, I have to do something fun. I have to do something exciting. And there's many things we do. I'll take people on hikes. How many other restaurants take people on hikes? <laughs> we do handwritten postcards, and we send those out to our guests after they've eaten with us. How many restaurants take their guests out on hikes? We'll find <laughs> out more about that when we come back.
We're back with our guest, Marcus Giuliano, and he is the author of 50 Mistakes Business Owners Make. He's also a restaurateur, and he has a restaurant in Ellenville that, even though I live almost 60 miles away, came to my attention because of Marcus's skill in outreach. He actually did a business workshop for a local library. As we talk about this issue of getting uh, undo, having one's own business and the need for outreach and ways to have it be effective and not be overwhelming. And that's what we're talking about today. And on a note of authenticity, um, Marcus arrived in studio with his smartphone and the tripod on which to set it and he will now make videos, and you can look on the website because you'll see some of uh, little excerpts from the video that Marcus has made. But speaking to the point of doing marketing, not have it be overwhelming, have it be authentic and effective. In that spirit, talking about effective, surprising marketing, before the break, you mentioned taking your restaurant guests on a hike absolutely take them on hikes and we we do we do something really fun so we charge ten dollars but it's a donation and we donate the money to the trail association to help beautify our local trails and keep signage current and make you know make sure that there's a connection between the trails and the village because mm-hmm. i think that's a very integral part of the beauty of upstate new york is we have all these great parks communities trails and they need to be better linked in my opinion in certain spots to the community so people can get off the trails and hit the table so we call it trails to table okay. and so we give them a beer or cider afterwards so we call it like a trail and ale okay. so they don't it's a ten dollar donation and uh, it's a lot of fun we it's great because we've taken guests with us hiking that have never been a guest in the restaurant before but then they become a guest so it's really it's really just a cool a cool way to um, experience have an experience with your guests outside of the restaurant because all of a sudden off topics come up and it's a whole different scenario of me just greeting somebody at the door and talking about wine and yeah. and this and that and it's a lot of fun. We actually bought a 15 passenger uh, van last year so we can actually take people now with us and we have the stickers to get in the state parks. So uh, we can transport people with this. And we also do winery and brewery tours and farm tours as well. Oh, that's extraordinary. Marcus, um, when we started speaking, you, you mentioned being at your grandmother's, you know, at her in her kitchen and learning how to roll out pasta. On this show, we say that it is a show about race, every race, and about courage. Tell us about your culture and how it has impacted your road to success. Absolutely. So I grew up Italian. My, uh, my grandparents came over from Italy in 1928, and I never met my grandfather, but my grandmother was a very instrumental part of me growing up. You know, it was all about going to Nana's house to cook and to eat. Mm-hmm. And the way that my family was raised, we actually lived in Colorado, and we moved back from Colorado, Colorado? Colorado Springs. Oh, okay. And we moved back in 1983 to be closer to my father's side of the family. There was nobody out in, out in Colorado, nobody from my mom's side or my father's side. So it was important that my father be close to his mother. 
and we moved back. And of course, all my aunts and uncles lived within the immediate area. And and moving back was where? Moving back was to Ellenville. Oh. My father was born and raised in Middletown. Okay. So that's where all of his brothers and sisters and all of my cousins were. And until I was nine years old, it wasn't it wasn't a regular thing for me just to go to grandma's house or see my cousins. It was always like Thanksgiving, Christmas, summertime vacations. And we would come in the summertime and stay for two, three, four weeks and live with my grandmother in the summertime just as far as part of normal vacation. But once we really moved around and we were here all the time, it was every Sunday night was dinner at her house and just being around the family. And the Italian culture is all based on family. So that was really super important to me. And food and what goes with family goes food and a lot of food. And many cultures around the world really take pride in putting a good cooked meal on the table. And I remember when I was a kid living in Colorado, my neighbors were eating TV dinners, those frozen TV dinners. And I, was, I knew to myself at six, seven, eight years old, this was a horrible concept. I was like, what do you mean your mom doesn't cook? I, I couldn't understand that that part of it, mm-hmm. that just go into the freezer and pull something out and pop it in the microwave and sit it in front of a TV and eat. It just it was disturbing at that young age. And it's disturbing now. It's disturbing now, right? <laughs> and so cooking was just a, a natural for me. It was something I never wanted to go into full time, but I knew as I was approaching into high school, uh, and once I was graduating, that hey, I need I want to learn how to cook as much as I can, and and I always wanted to go to Italy and cook, but not become a professional chef. I just wanted to go learn how to cook and and so, be able to provide for myself a, a good meal. So what did you want to be at that time? You know, I was going for business, mm-hmm. and I wasn't really sure. I knew as a young as a young kid, I was fascinated with you could buy something and then resell it for a lot more money. <laughs> so I was like, you mean if I pay five bucks for this? People would pay me 10 for it. So I was always fascinated by that concept. So I was interested in business, and I was oh. going for a business degree in the beginning. Okay. And um, I was waiting tables at a local hotel, because that's what you did in our area, in the Catskill Hotels. And so the, it was introduced, the whole food concept, the whole food concept and, and being in business. It all just kind of started meshing together. And then once I got a job as a prep cook, as a part-time job, mm-hmm. Because, I, again, I wanted to learn how to cook more. So I said, oh, there's an opportunity for me to work in one shift a week in one place and chop some onions and learn some things. That would be a lot of fun. Sous chef. And then it became very addictive. Okay. So if you had to look at the trajectory of your career coming from your family, an immigrant family, um, and then changing m- far Midwest to the East Coast, what would be the moment of courage for your family or for you that you would point to? The moment of courage, courage to open my own place or courage to... Whatever it is, just something that made you say, should I, could I, would I, yeah, I'm going to. That's interesting. Um, I mean, obviously, your grandparents have it if they're immigrants. Yes, uh, absolutely. So the biggest thing for me was opening my own place. And that that did take a lot of courage. But it got to the point in my career where, you know, I was told as a young chef that at some point I'm going to form my own style. 
And I was frustrated at first because like, what's my style? What's my style? I'm, I graduated culinary school. I'm working at some big properties. What's Where my style? Where did you style? go to school? I went to school right here in Sullivan County. Oh. Sullivan County Community College. I got my culinary degree here locally. Oh, So okay. I was taught as a young cook as a young apprentice, that it doesn't matter where you go to school. It matters who you work for and your work ethics. And when you're going to go work for somebody, you work for somebody who you're going to learn from. And this is a big thing that I talk about when I talk to students. Never take a job for the money. Take a job for the experience. There'll be a plenty of points in your life where you need to take a job for the money because you have a family, because you have a mortgage, because you have car payments. But while you're young, living at home, and have the freedom to do this and do that, Take a job for the learning experience, and that'll build the foundation, which will then help you make more money in the long run. And a lot of students, a lot of a lot of chefs, of chef apprentices, they don't work in the field first. And I think that's the biggest mistake in anything anybody does. Just having a conversation with my daughter the other day about get into a vet office, and this is what she wants to do. Get in there, start working it, see what you like, see what you don't like. And when you surround yourself from chef, with chefs and you're in the industry before you go to culinary school, I was told, you know, everybody who graduates college is going to have the same opportunity to make eight bucks an hour. That's realistically. Do you want to make eight bucks an hour with huge college loans or do you want to go somewhere and and be able to pay for college as, as you can do it? And I spent $7,000 for my culinary education. I didn't have zero, zero debt when I, when I got out. I was able to live at home, was able to work and go to school and graduate top of my class and graduate debt-free and with experience that helped me get my next job. And really, school is, for those of those people that are thinking about going to some high, pricey school, there's certain schools that you need to do something because of a specific degree. If you're, you know, some state regulation, you need this degree. But in the culinary world, and a lot of the businesses that we choose to, to work at or own or manage, you know, it's it's how well you personally do and, and what you do on the side. And I see a lot of chef apprentices who, you know, they'll sharpen their knives like far after they're dull. And I'm like, you need to be sharpening your knife last week. Why didn't you come in a half an hour early? And sh-? But there's that person that does come in a half an hour early and sharpens their knife and that goes over their prep list and that goes home at night and reads a book and is fascinated by books and, and always wanting to learn. And there's that person who comes in and just just punches the clock and punches in and punches out. I don't care what degree you get, where you go. If you're just a clock puncher, it, it's you're not going far. But it, it, there's people that have never graduated high school that are that are billionaires, multimillionaires, because they're more than clock punchers. So I went to Sullivan. I had an amazing education because I thought I, because I was advanced because I was working in the field. The professors pulled me aside and gave me extra care. And they actually helped me get to my next level. Like, where, what do you want to do after college? Where do you want to go work? And this and that. And I was actually helped. They actually advised me to go to a place in West Virginia called the Greenbrier. And the Greenbrier was, is an amazing resort. The problem was they have 500 applicants a year for 22 positions. I got two rejection letters. But, of course, since I'm not a clock puncher, I kept working and working. So I went to another place in Colorado called the Broadmoor Hotel. And I started working there. And they call this the Riviera of the Rockies. It's this beautiful Italian-inspired, Tuscan-inspired hotel that sits right on the base of the Rocky Mountains. And two, I'm working there for two weeks, and I walk into the CEO's office, the president's office, and I say, I'd like to see Steve Bartlin, Mr. Bartlin. And they go, well, what's your business? I said, I work here. They go, what's it about? I said, I just want to introduce myself. That's all. 
I'll take an appointment whenever he's free. I'll want to come in and say hi. And so I had an appointment the next week and I sat down with him and and he didn't really understand why I was in there because no chef apprentice just goes introduces themselves to the CEO of one of America's top resorts. But he 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 gave me the time and we sat down for 45 minutes and talked. And as we're talking about what my goals were, I said, I want to go work at the Greenbrier. And he goes, I used to be the general manager there. When do you want to start? Basically. And I said, wow, this is amazing. So I spent nine months at the Broadmoor. I came back and graduated from Sullivan because I came back to finish my last semester. And I had a job that March at the Greenbrier in West Virginia, which I spent three years there um, doing my apprenticeship program and learning more and, of course, networking with more chefs. And from there, I went to London because the one chef there took me under his wing and said, I have a great guy in London. And the guy in London had just trained Gordon Ramsay. Gordon Ramsay had learned to cook there. Marco Pierre White had learned to work there. Gordon Ramsay had just opened his first restaurant, Aubergine, which was two blocks away from I was going to a place called uh, La Tante Claire, Pierre Kaufman, who was one of the most respected chefs in all of London. He had uh, one of the, at the time, one of the only 25 Michelin three-star hotels, three-star restaurants in the country. So I went there. I learned more. I didn't even ask for money. I went there and I volunteered. And then I went and volunteered at two other places because I said, I want to work at a great hotel while I'm here. I went to the Lanesboro. Then I got in with Anton Mosman, who has a private dining club, cooked dinner for Princess Diana a month before she was killed. And, um, you know, so I went there and I didn't, I didn't ask for anything because this was for me, this was graduate school. People go to graduate school and they pay an exorbitant amount. And here I'm going to work for one of the best chefs in the world for free. Don't, I, I'm just showing up to work. I got sharp knives and it's a whole, I know it's off topic, but it's a great story that I, that no, I do talk to students. No, it's not off topic at all. <laughs> it's not off topic at all. As we look at the business that you have created, what is the number one mistake that you made that ultimately propelled the business? Okay. First mistake is being naive. And you talk to, uh, I've talked to a lot of business owners who didn't know the challenge that was in front of them. They had no idea. I spoke to the two brothers who started Earth's Best Baby Food, first organic baby food ever, first um, baby food in 40 years to go out on the market. They had no idea what they were up against, no clue. I mean, to start a brand new label that's going to go nationwide um, and be the first person to break into that market since Gerber in the 40s, they were naive, but they did it. If I sat there in Ellenville and said, well, you know, Here's my in-depth business plan. Let me talk to peop- more people. Let me do this. Let me do that. I would have talked myself out of it. So it's great to have knowledge and it's great to, to, know, to know all these things and be prepared. But sometimes I think we're overprepared and we overanalyze and we don't make decisions based upon our heart. And I knew that Ellenville was in my heart because I was living there. My kids were going to school there. And we could have opened a restaurant anywhere. We could have been, even two, three, four years after we opened, we had offers to go in New York City to open up and do other things. And we actually went to New York City for a business meeting. We were sitting with the investors. We had a place picked out. And it's 2.30 in the afternoon, 3 o'clock, and my wife gets a phone call. It's our son. Mom, where's my baseball stuff? He's in Little League at the time. I guess where his baseball stuff was? In the back of our car in New York City. And we looked at each other and said, what in the world are we doing? We have a restaurant in Ellenville. We have a home. We have everything we need in Ellenville. Are we making as much money as we would be somewhere else? Well, no. Well, if we were somewhere else, maybe we'd be losing money. So it's, it's, it's a matter of, of going with your heart and understanding that, hey, this is what we want to do, and this is how I feel about it. 
I want to ask you something on, on this. You're talking about Ellenville. Ellenville is a small town in upstate New York. Um, it is in the Catskill area, so it's in a destination area. But it's in an area, there are people around the country who will hear this, it's in an area that unfortunately upstate New York has also been extremely depressed. And that is in, that predates the crash of 2007-2008. So many of the towns around here look like ghost towns, and and that's just... We used to be booming in Ellenville. We had two major hotels. We were the Borscht Belt. Mm -hmm. There were stores in Ellenville. When we opened in 2003, we were the first restaurant to open in 30 years plus, and we were the first restaurant that was located downtown. Now there's six restaurants downtown. Okay, and that is what I wanted to speak to because for... As people listen to this, there there are a lot of people who have lost their jobs. In There are still people who may be employed, but they are either underemployed or they are misemployed. They're outside of what they really want to do. They're trying to figure out their next step. People look at the environment, what's going on, I mean, the political climate, they look at the financial climate, and they say, these are such rough times, I just can't start a business now. What do you say to that? (laughs) There's never a bad time for a good business. Business is what you make of it. It's how much effort you put in. It's, It's how you run your business. It's how you are as a person. Do you respect people? Do you respect the environment? Can you get people to work for you? If you have a good business and you're a good business leader, There's never a bad time to execute that. We're back with our guest, Marcus Giuliano, restaurateur and author of the new book, 50 Mistakes Business Owners Make. On the show today, we're talking about money, growing a business, and yes, food, glorious food. Let's start from the very beginning, and I'll ask you a couple of quick questions. How'd you find the money? (laughs) Borrowed. Okay. I knew I wasn't going to... We actually... We actually took a, a uh, bar from our house. Oh, okay. so we, we so it was you, all of our own money. We mortgaged your house. We mortgaged our house. Okay, and it wasn't nearly enough. All right, how many people told you you couldn't do it and oh, shouldn't do it? Tons of people. Okay, people took bets that we weren't going to survive. Mm-hmm. Once you did start, how did you make? I mean, when you're in a depressed community, a lot of times the community no longer believes in itself. How did you make people believe in you? To be able to start, <laughs> and there's still the people that don't believe in our community, and it's frustrating. But you know, you go out there and you believe in it. Our very first year open, we started a soup kitchen, so we started giving meals to the community on Christmas Day, and that has led from giving away 35 meals our first year to giving away 700 meals each year now, mm-hmm. and it brings the community together. Um, Jamie and I now, my wife, we now uh, are the race directors for Run Like the Wind. We raise $10,000 every year for the community that goes back to whoever needs money, sports, scholarships, all kinds of things. It's a matter of just going out there and showing your face and saying, I'm here, I'm part of the community, and this is what needs to be done. And the return on investment from a decision like that? 
What has happened? You know, it, it depends on who you talk to. Uh, you know, any kind of small community has a lot of jealousy. Mm-hmm. And because we're successful, more people are jealous. And because we're successful, more people like us. And I always like to say, if half the people didn't like you, you could be president of the U.S., right? So, <laughs> <laughs> okay. <laughs> so, you know, so we have a lot more people that don't like us. We have a lot more people that do like us. Mm-hmm. So it's, it's. I mean, our business is, is thriving. Our business is flourishing. Um, you know, of course, there's always business challenges. And the one thing that people will think, people see, well, oh, you have a busy restaurant. You must be making hand over fist. And that's just not the case whatsoever because the business environment is so far different than when we first opened in 2003, which was so far different from the previous 10 years. And between the fees here and, and, and in, increased wages from staff, it's it's a challenge still. And I, we have to go to work every day and say, we how are we going to make our business this much better today, this week, tomorrow, this year? What are our goals? And we have to manage the numbers very, very carefully, much more than carefully than we had to do it 10 years ago. And I feel like we still have to try just as hard as we had to 10 years ago. But, of course, now we have a lot more assets. We have a lot more. We bought our building. Our, for After our first four years, we, we bought the building. Uh, we're doing now. I'm at a point where we take money and we put it back into the business every year. And I buy new refrigeration. I I do projects. We build things. So it's really nice to be at a point in the business where we can put money towards things like that. We just put all new air conditioning in, in the restaurant, which was the ductless units. That was something I could have never afforded. Uh, that was half of my opening budget. These units. However, did you use your local businesses or? Were they your contractors and subcontractors? We try to use as many local people as we possibly can. And for the air conditioning units, I called actually a local friend who does that. Okay. So, yes. Yeah. So, so somebody who I've, I've been using for years for electric who is a local friend. Yes, it's in the immediate region. That's who we. So it is part of that rising tide lifting apps 100%. I started an Ellenville website, ellenvillewillworsing.com, and I have every restaurant listed on there because, again, you know, rising tide, it brings everybody up because I want people to see Ellenville has so much to do. So I send an email out every week where I do it. I, I do use my own money for this, an email out of what's going on in Ellenville. If you have a restaurant that's next to me or down the street and you're doing an event and you get it on the Facebook page, I'll send it out in an email that week on my own dime. I'll post it on the Ellenville Warsing calendar, which I do on my own dime and to promote the area because so I believe it, in the area. In a time when, when excuse me, I didn't mean to cut you off, but in a time when um, resources are somewhat tight and um, people feel, some people are using their fear to motivate them and to talk about what they have to clamp down on, how did you get the chutzpah to <laughs> decide that you were going to help promote your, com- your competition? It's about promoting a community, and it's about giving people a reason to come to Ellenville. And I may not be the only reason people come to Ellenville, and I know that. Mm-hmm. I may be one of the top reasons, you know, just because we have the no- number one rated restaurant on TripAdvisor, on Yelp, whatever it is. But there's people, if people come to Ellenville, they're going to want to hike. They're going to eat other places. They're going to want to go to the theater. They want to do other things. So if I can post something online that'll get one more person to Ellenville, we're all going to benefit from it because they're not going to spend money at just one place. And I understand that I'm, I'm not there competing with anybody else with the same type of food 
and I've actually sat down with other restaurant owners in previous years and say, hey, we're selling the same product. If we're selling the same beer, for example, mm-hmm. we should both be charging the same price. There's no reason to undercut each other. It's hard enough to make money to begin with in our industry and in our work in our business environment and in New York. So why why are we trying to beat up each other for a dollar over the same product? So we just restaurant another restaurant myself decided years ago that if we're selling the same brand, we're going to sell for the same price. In the decisions that you've made, you're an Italian restaurant. Basically, that's what you are. But you have made decisions that create something very unique out of being an Italian restaurant. The three top things, I mean, I'll cite one that really impressed me, was that on your newsletter, you were using foods that came from other traditions and techniques that came from other traditions. We're very global in our food our food inspirations. And I think there's a lot of different cuisines and cultures around the world that have very healthy, vibrant, big flavors that I love. Indian cuisine, Thai cuisine, uh, true, true Mexican, not Tex-Mex, but true Mexican, um, Caribbean flavors, the Pacific Rim. Even at a certain time of the year, we run a whole, whole uh, German menu for Oktoberfest. Mm-hmm. And it's about celebrating real food wherever it's coming from. So, of course, we buy local. We buy a lot of local. But what happens when we can't buy something local? Let's look at the bar, for example. Cognac only comes from Cognac, France. So now I'm faced with a decision. Do I buy the top five brands, which are a conglomerate and owned by one or two companies? Or do I search out a small producer who I can actually pick up the phone and speak to the owner and who's happy to see me when we see each other in New York City and thank me for his business? So every... Everything we do matters. Every we affect so many different communities, not only our own. And you know whether we're buying shrimp from across the world, which we, shrimp does. There's no local shrimp. Um, now we have that farm in Newburgh, which I can't wait to go check them out and see what they're doing. But on a, tell on us a, about the farm in Newburgh. So there's a shrimp farm in Newburgh. I don't know much about it. I've only read about it, and uh, I'm I can't wait to go there and. Uh, and put it on my YouTube channel because we we go all the time to other wineries, producers. We went to a truffle manufacturer, a truffle oil maker in Connecticut last month, and uh, he had a quarter million dollars of Italian truffles on the table there. And we got a whole lesson on making truffle oil and truffle salt. So we try to go visit. We last week we caught the last day of maple syrup production here in the mm-hmm. Catskills, and we saw the trees being tapped or untapped at that point, basically, and the syrup being boiled down and osmosis happening and. So these are things we put out to our guests to show, hey, we have, this is where our food comes from. We took a 12-day tour of Italy to a year and a half ago and visited all the wineries that we do business with. And of course, since they're small family-run operations, we stayed with the families. They put us up in their guest house. They put us up in their, if they had a little inn, they put us up there. They cooked dinner for us. They took us out. They, they dined us. So, you know, business, whether we're doing it locally or abroad, we're impacting somebody's community somewhere. Mm -hmm. And we need to take pride in in who we buy from. And that's our big thing is it's all about pride in who we buy from. And I I think that what I'm also hearing is how much it becomes a way of life and a way of thinking. And when I said Italian restaurant, it I did it deliberately because so often people walk into a very broad thing. You could just look and say, you know, but how do you find a niche? How do you make something unique? So let's come back, having given that description and what you do. 
Now, tell us who you are at Aroma Time that is really so much more than just saying it's an Italian restaurant. Right, because we're far from Italian. Exactly. I'm Italian, and I, I have a lot of my, and, and that's whole my whole inspiration for food and everything is Italian and my whole my whole encouragement. But, you know, our 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 big thing is respect. It's all about you know, we, we can't stand to hear that, oh, this community has this in it and, and they're abusing it and they're run off from this. And do you, know, do you know what this is doing to this community? We all hear about these things, but we typically don't care if it's not in our own community what's happening somewhere. So for us, it's about buying a product that, that we know is creating the most jobs they possibly can. That's in a real community. That, that's a real owner. That's doing that. That's they're smart enough not to spray chemicals on their own land, whether it's locally or in Italy or in France. Because let's face it, if you live and you're, you have a small vineyard and you have five acres or 25 acres, you're not, you're smarter than to spray stuff on your own land. But if you're a conglomerate and it's all about yields, 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 you know, you're, you're on a, you're on a corporate farm. You're on, that's much different the environment. We buy quinoa from a farm in Colorado that I've been on five times and for me, I love quinoa. A lot of people do love quinoa. But do they know that buying quinoa is creating a major imbalance in South America because we're taking the food from the natives down there that relied upon this for centuries, and we've elevated the price so high that they can no longer afford their own native food. So what is an option? An option is to buy from an American farm who has American workers, who pays more to begin with, and the price is two to three times the price. But it's what I have to do to make sure that I'm not taking somebody else's food source in South America so I can make money for my family. I would feel terrible about that. I love the fact that you said that the number one thing was respect. So when you look at the current climate that we're in, where there is so much disrespect, what does that tell you about the need for your business and the trajectory that you will take over the next year. So the need for my business is people people want and are interested in what we do, and they're not educated enough about it, which is why I make a YouTube video a day just talking about all kinds of stuff like this. But I think the real path that I'm taking is I'm helping other business owners succeed, and that's the reason for the book, the reason for the website, because 50mistakes.com is a website as well that you can go on there and get all kinds of tips and videos and all kinds of resources. I like to help other people succeed. And um, I'm really fascinated by going in and, and, and helping businesses solve problems. So I have no plans to leave Aroma Time and no plans of that. But we're in, we're in it for 14 years now, going on 15 years. And I'm at a point where do I open more restaurants? Is that what I want? I'm kind of thinking, well, that's not really what I want. I want to be able to show other people how to run a restaurant like Aroma Time. Profitably, respectably, sustainably. Our guest today has been Marcus Giuliano. He is the author of 50 Mistakes Business Owners Make. He is the restaurateur behind Aroma Time and its affiliated, interconnected network of websites and YouTube and hiking and all sorts of outreach activities that make his restaurant a destination that you'll want to come to. 
Today on the Janice Adams Show, our guest has been restaurateur Marcus Giuliano, author of the book, 50 Mistakes Business Owners Make. For more about today's show, links to Marcus's website, the videos he made while taping today's show, and our upcoming guest, Elizabeth White, author of Faking Normal, please visit my website, JaniceAdams.com. That's J-A-N-U-S Adams.com. From the studios of WJFF Radio Catskill, our thanks to our guests and to you for joining us today. I'm Janice Adams.